Thanks for downloading this Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For more information on the centre, go to ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash chomi. In this episode, a recording from the medical training, student experience and the transmission of knowledge circa 1800 to 2014 symposium, which took place in the UCD Humanities Institute in October 2014. The symposium was organised by Laura Kelly of University College Dublin and was generously supported by the Irish Research Council and the Wellcome Trust. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording from Panel 2, Student Culture and Experience. The paper, Portrait of the Medical Student as a Young Man, Caricatures, Realism and Airbrushed History, circa 1825 to 1939, was given by Jonathan Reinhardt's of the University of Birmingham. You'd be forgiven for thinking that I was going to talk about uh, James Joyce, uh, but I thought it was an appropriate title for a number of reasons. Um, I am going to talk about literature and medicine, um, but I'm not going to, although I could, compare Joyce with my chosen author, Francis Brett Young, who's shown there on the screen. Um, I think the choice of the title of his, uh, his novel, his autobiographical novel, um, which recounts his time as a medical student in Birmingham, is significant because Francis Brett Young was um, obsessed with James Joyce, I think it's fair to say, and D.H. Lawrence, and all of these, um, these novelists who were um, accepted by the literary critics, really. But he's, he's, a, he's a, a writer who you can't ignore, because we've been talking about alternative sources and getting at different stories of uh, medical education and medical students, and I think... His, his novel is, is, is one that fits that category. So I'm going to offer you an alternative reading, um, though I could take that comparison with Joyce further. Joyce, of course, um, uh, famously uh, reproduced the streets of Dublin in his novels in a way that you could almost remap the city. Um, there's something of this in, in Francis Brett Young's novels, and this is why I find them so interesting and some would say valuable. Um, and in the novels that are suggested by the title of this talk, um, the, the main characters are these fictional alter egos of, of the, the writers, and they're telling us a lot about the author as well. And like I said, while James Joyce is at the forefront of literary modernism, nobody's reading Francis Brett Young anymore except members of the Francis Brett Young Society and people interested <laughs> in the, uh, the history of the Midlands. Um, Francis Brett Young was sort of recognized as a middle-brow Author, but you can't ignore him because he was the best selling author in the early 20th century, until the 1930s in England. Um, his novels were selling uh, in the tens of thousands, and in fact, his more famous Portrait of Claire, which again incorporates part of Joyce's um, famous title in its title, um, shows you his obsession, but it also demonstrated that he could potentially sell 100,000 novels. So I think they're important for a number of reasons. Most importantly, because, as David Canadine and others have argued, they capture some of that atmosphere. That without this sort of a source, it, the story of medical education in provincial England remains an empty vessel, and he fills this with all sorts of uh, atmosphere, um, which would be lacking if we relied on the usual sources. So in this talk, I am going to mention what he, he could explore all sorts of issues from his novels, but I'm going to talk about medical students. Um, as Roy Porter said, there's certain uh, subjects in the history of medicine which are very difficult to recapture, and the medical student story is as difficult to recapture as the patient story. Um, so I'm going to give you the patient's point of view through these novels because there is an uh, autobiographical element to them. 
um, but after studying them extensively, that it's, it's uncanny how much is, uh, is literally taken from his experience uh, in, in Birmingham in the, the Midlands uh, during his university studies. But there is there's one important point where they diverge, and I think that's a point that I want to end on. So again, it's, it's, it's about literature, but it's also about medicine, and it's engaging with this idea of how medical education and the medical student transformed in the Victorian and Edwardian periods. A few people have written on it, most notably Keir Waddington, who suggests that this new style of education, which you got a glimpse of from Michael's talk, that gradually goes from these, these private anatomy schools and becomes rooted within the hospital, even if they don't have the lecture theatres and other spaces to confer modern education to medical students. 11,000 students are going to London uh, from 1725 to 1815. And gradually, concerns uh, rise because of their reputation as drunken, disorderly, riotous students, simply causing trouble when they're associated with this moral, uh, morally upright profession, uh, or much more is expected of them in any case. Um, so these, the urban anxieties feed into the way that they're described, low men of low habits, and they're famously parodied by people like Dickens, uh, Allen and Sawyer in Pickwick Papers, but uh, Punch, you've seen the other drawings as well. Uh, and what Waddington and others suggest is that this significant transformation occurs in the late Victorian, uh, and I would say probably later into the Edwardian um, period. So gradually, um, caricatures such as the ones made famous by the Punch drawings um, are challenged. Uh, significantly by the doctors at first, so a lot of doctors contesting these representations as medical students, troublemakers. Um, but also, Waddington makes a case for an actual professionalizing of the student occurring. You've seen the sort of what they're gaining from medical schools is group experience that wasn't there for apprenticeship, but apprenticeship also provided some sort of guidance that the new form of medical education didn't. Um, and Waddington suggests that there were key structural changes which are quite significant. He showed this in his study of uh, St. Bartholomew's, where you have the um, accommodation being built. Um, you have discipline committees. You have sporting teams and other team or societies emerging where students are um, spending more time discussing what's being taught to them in their lectures as opposed to simply exploring London. And, uh, and getting into all sorts of trouble. So the curriculum starts to become uh, loaded. They have the facilities that they didn't have originally when these were sort of hospital schools. Now they're starting to look a bit more like Edinburgh by the late Victorian period. And what emerges is a most industrious medical student by the 1890s. Now, what this paper is really about is adding more to this story and questioning whether this is real, imagined, manufactured, how much of this is airbrushed, as the title suggests. And we're going to look at this through the work of one medical student. So as I said, Francis Brett Young was a, a medical student in Birmingham, soon after became a university medical school. And if we were to um, consider what literary historians or literary scholars have said, you have to take the um, uh, the writer's life story um, uh, into consideration when you're going to read the work in this way. Um, and I think it is significant that uh, Francis Brett Young was the son of a doctor. Uh, he'd been um, uh, given a very privileged education, graduating from Epsom. Uh, his mother died during his childhood, again, like James Joyce. Um, and this sort of uh, story begins to emerge in his novels. But what really seems to be a formative um, a moment for him is that his father's debt 
doesn't allow him to con- continue that sort of privileged education. He never makes it to Oxford, um, where he clearly wanted to go, but he has to go to Birmingham. So you can just imagine. <laughs> he spent the rest of his life thinking about this. So his thwarted ambitions um, came out in lots of ways, uh, not least the, the novels that he wrote. Um, he was obviously a very good medical student. He, he uh, took the Sandscock scholarship in his first year and then spent a very productive um, number of years in Birmingham. And we probably wouldn't know anything more about them than his name emerging in the student registers had he not become a, a writer. But by 1911, he decided that he was going to write about Birmingham and like David Lodge's work. Um, it's not uh, Rummage, it's now North Bromwich. And we hear a lot about it because in 1911, while exploring the Severn Valley, which he admired in the countryside around Birmingham, which he wrote about in a very romantic way, um, he determined to illuminate by a number of sections through its social strata a life of the Western Midlands during those impressionable years when I was best qualified to observe it. And that's exactly what he does. In fact, he is not a creative writer. He's a very uncreative writer because that's all he continually does throughout his career. And this is how David Canadine also describes it. That by the time he's writing his last works, he's simply rehashing the old story. He cannot let go of the characters he knows best, the medical student, the doctor. Um, and this, uh, this makes it so interesting for uh, a study like this. So there's, there's a clear geographical coherence in his novels. In fact, you just need to have a, a, a translation beside a normal map. And in fact, by the 1930s, they started to republish his works uh, with maps in them of the region because they just corresponded so well with his novels. So um, you don't need much uh, help deciphering that Dalston is Dudley, Halesby is Hales-Owen, where he actually grew up and commuted to the medical school from, and Wolverbury, no prizes for guesses. Uh, but North Bromwich is the important one because this is Birmingham, and th- this whole region becomes his chosen scene for his, his nine novels. He wrote 30 novels, and nine of them are set in the Midlands, and there's always a doctor in them, and there's always some sort of exploration of a time as a medical student. And this is the same for when he's exploring um, North Bromwich or Birmingham, that you come across Alveston, Edgbaston. Um, Red Barn Road, uh, Rattle Barn Road, if you know, sort of Selly Oak area, Sparkdale, Sparkbrook, very thinly camouflaged. And this is why historians find it interesting. You actually just sort of pat yourself on the back the whole time when you're reading it and say, I recognize this and I recognize that. And as he traveled from Hales Owen into Birmingham on the train with a few other medical students during the early 20th century, he describes leaving that sort of uh, countryside that he loved so much and it grows progressively more and more grim so that architecture is as grandiose as it is. He describes it becomes dark and grim. He describes Birmingham's or um, North Bromwich's pretentious buildings. Um, you can see that uh, it has very few uh, redeeming features in his opinion. Uh, the medical school, when he started in Birmingham, the, the university that exists today um, opened in 1900. But the medical school continued to be run out of Mason's College in the center of town. And that, of course, was replaced by the 1970s Birmingham Library. If you know Birmingham, that huge modern building that's just been replaced um, by a a larger library just outside. Uh, And in the novels, this is very significantly, this this medical school and science building is placed between a steam laundry and a brass worker's office because you have some sort of hint of where the wealth in this town came from to allow people to climb from ordinary shopkeepers and small industrialists into uh, a new gentry, uh, literally buying up the, the property of, of the gentry in the, in the region. Um, and uh, the steam laundry, where they sort of, it is essentially that sort of a building, sort of factory, but these 
sons of industrialists are going in one side and they're attempting to wash off the grime that was associated with the trades and come out as learned men. We're talking about creating gentlemen again. Um, He's constantly referring to the shortcomings of the self-made man. And Birmingham at this time, whenever it tries to do anything, is ridiculed. So the triennial music festivals, he says, are so appropriate to a town that sort of uh, takes to music the way a boa constrictor eats its prey. That it sort of gorges itself over one mad weekend and then goes back to sleep for another three years until the music returns. So he's this interesting... Um, his, uh, Dichotomy emerges from his, his novels, his love of the countryside, where he always is able to retreat back to Hales Owen into the green countryside and, and this grimy industrial town, which can never support the sort of education that he wants. And what's also interesting from a historian's perspective is the temporal unity. This is not just a place that is recognizable, but things happen that actually happen. So he describes the Lloyd George riots in 1901 when a 38-year-old Lloyd George, radical liberal, comes to Birmingham and speaks out or plans to speak out against the Boer War. And um, the students, of course, surrounded the town hall and the medical students led the way to battering down the the front door and and he escaped dressed as a police officer. But those medical students were ready to tear him limb from limb, as Brett Young says in his novel. And this is why someone like David Canadine relied on these novels for his history of the decline of the English working class, because he can trace these same families, so 44 of the small gentry that were in this region, and it wasn't known for its aristocracy, but by the end of the 1930s, when Canadine's study is sort of coming to an end, 37 of these families had sold off their property, and this is recounted in the same sort of thinly veiled, fictitious families which he reconstructs. So you can also trace the rise of the university in Birmingham, but importantly for this talk, you can see the types of patients types of students beginning to emerge. Um, and again, I would say that what really begins to emerge in contrast to, to the uh, opening address we heard was that the student body is very divided. There are moments when they seem to cohere, but there's a clear division between those few public school educated um, uh, boys coming to Birmingham. And of course, they were accepting women by this time, but primarily young men and those, the sons of industry, uh, but even, you know, he describes the son, the daughter of a pawnbroker. And, and this group, they just refuse to, to come together in his, his stories. And I think this is probably based on, on some truths. Um, but the detail is amazing. The tuition fees correspond with that outlined in the prospectuses at the time. The medical fees, exactly what the medical practitioners were charging in Birmingham. And the cost of a medical practice, when he eventually leaves Birmingham, moves to Dorset, and sets up practice in Brixham, um, his autobiography suggests he paid £400, and in the novels, pays, uh, Ed, Edward, Edwin Ingleby, the main character of the young physician, pays that amount to set himself up in practice. So the medical portraits that we see are, are similar to this. Um, uh, Brett Young had felt that the doctor had rarely been adequately treated, and his novels alone um, rectified the absence of medical practitioners in, in literature up to that time, um, and uh, he recreates them using not a language that's accessible to the public, but their technical vocabularies. He learned it as a medical student. And the staff are identifiable with these very minor changes. Uh, Charles Perslow becomes Jimmy Perswell. Jordan Lloyd becomes Lloyd Moore. You can see that it's not great detective work. 
Um, Lawson Tate, one of my favorite, he's uh, Simpson Lyle, because the play on the Tate and Lyle name. And Simpson, of course, uh, they thought Lawson Tate was the illegitimate son of James Simpson. Um, he, and he was referred to in the novels as an Edinburgh man who fights antiseptic surgery tooth and nail. And this basically sums up Lawson Tate. So while he says he never based any of his characters on people from life, I mean, it's, 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 it's clear that you know, uh, Simpson Lyle in the story uh, declines a baronetcy offered by Gladstone exactly like Lawson Tate. Uh, when he begins to describe the dean of the medical school in Birmingham at this time, um, you get this character that some of you are familiar with, uh, Bertram Windle, who went on to be president of Cork, or Queen's College Cork. Um, he's described as a fair-haired. Uh, the, you, he describes the gold spectacles, but a dead giveaway that he's the Irish anatomist because he was the professor of anatomy. Now, Windle was later famous at Cork for improving student facilities, and this is exactly what he was trying to do in those early years. But the students had a common room. Previously, back to the porter, they, had, they used the porter's room, which was a lounging place for students, but Bertram Windle gave them something better. Uh, still dismal, they had dis, uh, disused workshops behind uh, Mason's College in 1883, but the students were canvassing for funds to have something better by, in the 1890s, and eventually they're offered what Brett Young describes as a dismal chamber at the very bottom of a cramped building that they occupied with some of the um, sciences who hadn't yet moved to the main Edgbaston campus. And there, in this dismal chamber, uh, students drank tea and ate squash fly biscuits. And you get that sort of detail, which won't come out of any other sources. And I, I use that image of the American um, anatomy students, again, because it just captures the, the scene, the way he describes it. They move between the anatomy room, which is right next door to this dismal quarter, to their tea room, and this is basically their daily lives. Dissect, have a cup of tea, bed a little bit, read the newspapers, um, and then I, I put a, a, a quotation from, from one of the histories of the Newcastle Medical School in there because it does recapture not just what the Birmingham facilities were like, but from some of the other research I've been doing on Bristol, Newcastle, Liverpool, um, uh, Leeds Medical Schools, um, it's, it's fairly similar. And you can see they're on the way to improving these facilities, but not quite by the end of the Victorian period um, in the way that, uh, that uh, Waddington would suggest. So in 1900, uh, it's a significant date because female or women medical students um, make their sobering appearance and it's suggested that they civilized some of these young men. And there were several, not just one or two, but several in, in Francis Brett Young's year, 1901. Um, but he goes on to describe the, the way that they were divided. And I think this is largely because there was such an age difference between the women who were first going to these medical schools in the provinces. They were often several years older than these boys, really, who were studying. Uh, insulated themselves with shapeless jibbers of russet brown. They bunched their hair back in a manner ruthlessly unfeminine. And again, the photograph comes from about a decade after. Um, but you can see that, th that these, are all, these are very mature women in many respects. Um, and Francis Brett Young underlines the divisions between the males and the females by saying romance was, was not bound to emerge. Um, <laughs> As you can imagine, the anatomy theater and dissection room feature prominently in the story because the students spent the first two years basically um, dissecting bodies. Uh, he describes this icy dissecting room in the basement of Mason's College. It's variously described as a chamber of 
horrors. It's uh, a room made gloomy uh, by a lack of lighting, uh, but I think quite an interesting comment that it's made colorful by the, the colored chalk. The, we were talking, I think, in one of the breaks about these amazing drawings which would appear and be erased uh, because they could be recre recreated. And of course, the bones they used were uh, illustrated with chalk to show where the muscles emerged. And um, again, this is, this is quite a, an interesting detail. And uh, the prosector's names were prominent uh, on the boards, but I think he shows the prominent role that the prosectors played in the teaching. It's not about the professors of anatomy, it's about what the day-to-day -day contact with the prosectors, and that often these people were so good at what they were doing, they made the professor of anatomy look like a dilettante. Um, so again, the bodies in this case were, were so prevalent that they could share one body between two students, but this was still a very formative moment in their education. And we don't have the images that uh, we saw earlier, but we have a few rare images of the, the male students and the female students mixing in this, in this gloomy room, characterized, of course, by the penetrating odor. And this is the only place in the medical school where you'll find students smoking as those smoking bans are introduced in the 20th century. And Francis Brett Young says they smoked and they joked and they did much more. They worked in their white overalls. And without the photographs, we can recreate the environment. Um, he describes the way they fought over bodies because they wanted the bodies from the workhouse, the emaciated bodies that were easier to dissect than the overweight bodies where there'd be maybe too much subcutaneous fat. So very interesting detail, which I've never seen in any other source. He goes into a lot of detail about their clinical training as well. Um, and clinical training is divided over two sites, exactly as it was in Birmingham. Not the Queen's Hospital, but it reappears as the Prince's Hospital in his. <laughs> Half the size of the General Hospital, which becomes the North Bromwich Infirmary. Um, but again, details like the solid building of early Victorian red brick with a store and port portico. It's exactly the way it was. Half the number of patients. The details like the cab rank outside, the 9 a.m. clinics, everybody's ready to go in and start their education there at 9 a.m. And it's on the west of Birmingham. North Bromwich Infirmary, it's the lower part of the city, this vast, what would ordinarily be a, quite an impressive building, but misplaced almost in this slum, near the patients that it was meant to treat. But he suggested that this contrast just took away from any grandeur that the building had, and instead refers to its terracotta arrogance. Um, interesting, too, that he talks about the windows. None of the windows would open, but this was one of the few hospitals built with the modern plenum system of ventilation, that it was hugely expensive to burn coal to get this artificial ventilation going. And all the towers were basically ventilation shafts where air was, was pumped out of the wards, but this was seen as, as backwards. Um, and eventually it would be backwards, largely because it was so expensive. Uh, what's interesting is that he doesn't write off the patients as quickly as he writes off many of the students who he met there. And, uh, and while it looks like he's going to describe them as this mass of evil-smelling humanity, as they start to enter the building and they encounter the students on the wards, these personalities begin to emerge. And he describes not just interactions between students and patients, but visits from families. And I found that because of the visiting book that I did with Graham very um, useful as a source as well. He describes other students which he generally regards with some contempt. You can imagine the reasons that brought him to Birmingham. Um, uh, they were, of course, separated from the rest of the, the, the students till 1938. They stayed in the city center, the English students, the physics students, they were all on the main campus by that time. So I think that sort of separation within the student body um, uh, makes a big uh, a difference how they, how they develop into groups. 
Um, they were local boys, largely, and some local uh, women. Um, for the years that uh, Brett Young is talking about, and that's how he describes them, the records show that 169 of the 193 medicals were local um, boys and women. He also describes, because it's just become a, un a university medical school, the seedy-looking person with a dejected, fair mustache, old enough to be the fathers of some of the other students. What he's describing is those people who were already qualified, but who now wanted to go back for a shorter period of time and gain that qualification, which was their right, having attended the uh, older medical school. But again, another division within the student body. They didn't have a rugby team like some of the, the London schools, and he resents this. This is a football team... <laughs> This is a football team that uh, um, emerged in Sheffield uh, around this time, but the provincial schools generally didn't have these. Birmingham had a small literary society, and you can imagine that Brett Young was one of the co-founders, um, and his character in the novel um, is also attending the meetings, and you have a very small group of, um, I guess, gentlemanly medical students in contrast to all of these other upstarts. Um, he was looking forward to wearing academic dress on the streets of Birmingham. You can sort of see in that upper image those two students in their gowns. I mean, more perhaps than if those other ones are students. But this didn't happen in Birmingham. They thought that this was just unbecoming an industrial town, so it wasn't required. And these student gowns and battered uh, mortarboards were simply left hanging in the cloakroom and they came out for the old special event. Um, but you could see that this is the sort of ritual and part of his education that Brett Young missed. Now, this is where it gets interesting because um, there is a student who he meets in the, um, this cafe at the bottom of Mason's College named Griffin, who is a brew brewing student. Um, he is essentially the every man of all the other students. The Griffin is the symbol of the University of Birmingham. So I've taken one from one of the publications. So he's supposed to be what all of the other students are essentially like. They're, they're there to have a good time, and the ones who really wanted to study are in the minority. But he has significantly turned him into a brewing student. Now, Birmingham was the first place in the UK to have a school for brewing. Um, and when they received their £28,000 from the Midland Association of Brewers... How many do you have? Two minutes? They... Um, they they appointed Adrian Brown as the professor of what would become biochemistry. Uh, it's another branch of science which wasn't offered at this, in the provincial universities, very quickly set up these new um, uh, science departments. But he, of course, sees it as just one more thing where Birmingham couldn't get it right. Uh, the brewers had on-the-job training before then, um, and they were doing this to other um, technical um, disciplines as well. So they had a mining school in Birmingham. You can see the oil derricks that were being set up on the campus grounds. They were teaching people to go into the oil industry. Uh, arts is merely a sideshow in Birmingham. They don't take it seriously, according to Brett Young. And, of course, many people satirize this, most famously in an Oxford pamphlet, which says he gets a degree in making jam at Liverpool in Birmingham. Um, there are lots of other things to tempt um, young students. Um, they were told originally it was safer to study in, Lon uh, in Birmingham than in London. Uh, but his father says that beware, there are lots of temptations for a boy of your age. And the greatest one, of course, is pantomime night, where everybody gets into fancy dress, and it's this sort of night of rowdiness. And the med school, as in the Lloyd 
George Riots takes the leading part, where two theaters are um, visited by the students en masse, dressed as cavemen, cavaliers, and other characters, and they interrupt the performances. So the middle classes are basically warned to stay away from the theaters these nights because the students are interrupting the performance, pre making presentations to the actors and many of the actresses who the students clearly know. And, uh, and in one occasion, they famously turned over a cab. Now, there is that one particular case, though, that Griffin is the student who just set apart from all the rest. Continually, it, people go back to Edwin and say, you know, this pig of a brewer that you're constantly spotted with, his old public school friend, he's a bad hat, he's a nasty fellow, he'll come to a rotten end. It's so easy to read through this, the, the, the fiction, really, that, of course, it's going to end badly. Um, it ends fatally, in fact, that uh, uh, Griffin, the brewing student, is found um, uh, drunken in Prince Albert Place, where he meets uh, a, a prostitute or an actress, and uh, he's found um, dead in her lodgings. Now, this is where the novel ends, and this is where I, I started becoming very interested. And you go into the archives and you start to you look for the porters and you look for these other people. So I was interested in, where is, where is the original Griffin in this story? So I went through the university archives, and eventually I found Adrian Barry in the story again, as the rest of um, Francis Brett Young's fiction. It's uncanny. He's a local boy from Tamworth. Um, he's uh, often um, found drunk across his bicycle in the 1910s. Um, he's fine, but eventually he gets his driver's license, clearly from a family of wealth, and he had a public school education. He appears in the news clippings of the university, and he's, it's said to be disgracing his profession. And eventually his death is reported in exactly the way it's recounted in the novel. Unusually, so this novel that was started in 1911, Francis Brett Young had the war experience and he finished it in 1918. Um, he does decide to add this, this character, but what he did change is that the disgraced student is a medical student. Um, so he turns him into a brewing student. I think that's a very significant detail. So Barry is actually found dead at 20 Belgrave Road in the home of Ethel Clay, an actress. Um, he had met in Bull Street just before 11, and just as in the story, he's complaining of a headache. He's snoring heavily. She couldn't wake him up. And they come in, and they pronounce him dead, death of respiratory, uh, paralysis of the respiratory organs. Anyway, I think that's where I should end. Because I just want to say, there are alternative sources. And people who have used them said that, um, well, in this case, Francis Brett Young's uh, writings are very faithful recordings of life in the Midlands. Um, he does have an anti-Birmingham bias, and you can read through these things uh, very easily. But what is evident is that the, at the end of it all, it's not just the countryside that he romanticizes, but he is incredibly loyal to his medical colleagues. And he does decide um, in his best-known novels to edit out some important details, which I think are also part of this, uh, what's happening within the medical profession that Waddington has written about. He admits to some professional rustiness amongst them, but there's hardly a charlatan among them. But I think they are being cultivated into this new professional class, but this story is also being pruned and it's being purged of certain detail in, in these other sources. There are, of course, the hardy perennials, but they last longer than Waddington says, because we're not talking about a period when the medical schools are having eight applicants for every position. I mean, this is where it's gotten to today. Um, I think from Belfast's three applicants for every position to Cardiff, where there's about 12. Uh, we're talking about everybody who wants to go to medical school 
um, gets into medical school. And only after the Second World War do you really have the sort of purging and choice that others have been writing about. And I think that what plays a, a more important role is the, not the creative, right, the more creative self-fashioning that's going on amongst the medical profession and people like Brett Young at the same time. So I'll stop the, the talk there.